Welcome to Born to be Breastfed with your host, Marie Biancuso. Our program aims to help you bust through the breastfeeding myths and ensure you and your baby enjoy the breastfeeding journey. Over the next hour, we'll help you figure out how to overcome the obstacles you might encounter and how to incorporate breastfeeding into your busy life. Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed, where every week we bust the myths and clarify the facts about breastfeeding and beyond. Now, today we're going to go just a little bit beyond. I have with me today my guest, author Lily Nichols. Lily is the author of Real Food for Pregnancy, The Science and Wisdom of Optimal Prenatal Nutrition. Lily, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Marie. Let me tell you a little bit about Lily. She is a registered dietitian nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author who has a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. Her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, and unapologetically critical of outdated dietary guidelines. She is the author of two best-selling books, Real Food for Pregnancy, and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Uh, Lily, I have to tell you, I'm just hugely interested in this book. To tell you the truth, I had to kind of remind myself that I had to do an interview. I couldn't just read the whole book and dive into it and make every recipe that was in there. (laughs) (laughs) Though I got to tell you, the very first thing that caught my eye was that, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, the, the peau de creme? Yes. Uh, I was thinking, this doesn't sound like real food. This just sounds like real food that tastes real good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Decadence, yep. <laughs> and, and, and for those of you who have not discovered Lily's book, I want to tell you, I am more enthused about this book than anything that I have seen in a long time. I would have paid money just for the recipes in the back, and I am not a recipe person. I'm usually a gal who, you know, kind of makes it up as I go along, as my husband says. My wife considers a recipe just a set of suggestions. But she does have some really interesting uh, recipes in the back, but the bulk of the book really is on this real food. So, Lily, can you tell us a little bit How did you become so passionate about prenatal nutrition and, along with it, gestational diabetes? Well, I have actually been in the prenatal nutrition sphere of the dietetics world for most of my career, really. So I have a background in public policy with the state of California's diabetes and pregnancy program. So that certainly got me into the gestational diabetes side of things. I practiced clinically for many years under a perinatologist, and a lot of what we were seeing was gestational diabetes, other pregnancy complications. I've also worked in a lot of consulting and research roles as well. And ultimately, all of these experiences combined made me realize, you know, the guidelines that exist currently are not doing our clients, our patients, much help. And sometimes they're making their health complications worse, especially gestational diabetes, for example. I had already been interested in the real food side of things for many, many years. Even before I went through my dietetics training, I had been 
introduced into more of an ancestral way of eating. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of took that, you know, with a grain of salt, because you never know how much you can believe from alternative sources. But while I was in my training, I took the opportunity, you know, as a student, you have access to all the medical journals. And so I'd be like, okay, what's the truth about what's saturated the real deal? <laughs> what's the real deal about vitamin K2? What's the deal with vitamin D? And so it allowed me to sort of question everything that I was being taught along the way. Um, and ultimately, I've taken that through into the prenatal nutrition side of things as well. And I think there's a lot of room for questioning and improving the guidelines based on new research. Lily, I'm not even a nutritionist or a dietitian. I'm just a nurse who has been in it for almost 40 years. But from the beginning, I was always kind of skeptical. And now I've lived long enough to know that some of the things that they were saying in the beginning, then they retracted, now they reinstated and blah, blah, blah. And it makes (laughs) me, you know, it kind of makes me wonder, do any of these folks really know what they're talking about? And it also, as I was hearing your story, I was thinking of myself People frequently will ask me, Marie, how did you get to be so passionate about breastfeeding? And my simplest answer is because I saw these really stupid things. That we, see, I'm the host. I can say stupid things. Uh, <laughs> but but I, I saw these really stupid things that we were telling mothers about breastfeeding, and it just didn't make sense to me. Right. And then I started digging into the science, and then I got, as you did, these clinical opportunities to work with the perinatologist and to have access to all of the medical journals and on and on. It's like, whoa, we are so screwing this up, folks. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I guess really that brings me to my next question, which is your approach to prenatal nutrition is substantially different than what we're going to hear if we go in and see our local GYN, OBGYN uh, for a prenatal visit. So tell us, where do you part company and why? I think we might know part of the why. It's because you're really going for the real evidence as opposed to what's just been passed down from generation to generation. But right. <laughs> so where, where is it that you really differ? Much of our dietary guidelines for pregnancy are just a a reflection of what the dietary guidelines are as a whole for the whole population. Um, and so what what I saw when you look at the guidelines, you know they they acknowledge that certain certain nutrient needs increase during pregnancy, like vitamin A and iron and iodine and so forth. But then when you actually look at the foods they recommend, the makeup of the diet, their suggestions end up limiting some of the major food sources of those nutrients, which doesn't make sense. Okay, so for example, the iron. Okay, iron needs increase in pregnancy. Everybody knows that. But then they suggest that you limit your consumption of animal foods you only consume lean meat, you choose chicken over beef. So people are automatically, in order to comply with especially the low-fat guidelines for pregnancy that they suggest, they're going to limit their consumption of meat, which limits their consumption of iron. So there's a lot of little like trickle-down things where there's just inconsistencies in in the recommendations. Another one is that, Excuse you know, me, you I just wanna... wanted to alert the audience. If you like beef, you want to pick up her book because I was astonished at how many times she mentioned or talked about how to prepare the beef. I'm like, wow, <laughs> this woman is different. Uh, excuse me, go ahead. 
So there's many other examples that we can choose. I think another one that's pretty obvious is the carbohydrate recommendations oh, in yeah. the in the conventional guidelines. So the recommendation is just like the general population, 45 to 65% of your calories come from carbohydrates. And unfortunately, when you do this, you again are automatically limiting your intake of many foods that are very nutrient dense. Moreover, they're not even all that picky about where your carbohydrates come from. Yeah, they'll from. talk about choosing high quality carbohydrates, but then they also say you can you can eat half your grains whole, meaning the other half can be essentially white flour products, your pastas right. and the white bread and the crackers. So again, there's just sort of some inconsistencies. And I think they try to make up for that by, you know, well, white flour is fortified with a handful of nutrients, so you're fine. But really, if you look at it beyond even that perspective, refined carbohydrates have a huge impact on our blood sugar. It's, it's not helpful metabolically for most people and especially not in pregnancy. So I think we definitely there's room for A, not eating such a large proportion of the diet from carbohydrates, but B, focusing much more on, on quality. I want to go back to that part about the white flour. And for the record, I have very little white flour in my house. But uh, I think that when people hear about the glucose levels and the uh, bad-for-you carbohydrates, they're thinking the cookies and the cakes. And it certainly is that stuff. But if you're going to sit down and eat all of, well, for instance, the pastas, I, oh, I could get in big trouble with the pastas. Uh, it, it is my sort of humble understanding that that just converts to sugar in your body anyway, right? Indeed it does. Yep. Okay. So yep. I think that that's a really important point that some people just don't understand. Uh, if you were to point to some of the biggest myths about nutrition in pregnancy, maybe the things that I've heard or that other women have heard when they're pregnant, what would you say is really a kind of a crack of baloney that if you were queen for a day, you would like to squelch? Well, I'll choose the most obvious one first, which is the eating for two myth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the eating for two concept is not necessarily bad, but it's misinterpreted. And a lot of people assume that it means that you need to eat double the quantity of food while you're pregnant. But in reality, your body really does not need that many more calories for pregnancy, for growing a baby. It's maybe about 300 extra calories, and even that is up for debate in the research still. So one of the quotes I love from a uh, prenatal nutrition researcher is that women don't need to eat for two. It should be modified to a pregnant woman needs to eat for 1.1 <laughs> because ah, calorie-wise, it. it's not that much more. But okay. what does increase is your requirements for certain micronutrients. So I think the way we interpret this eating for two thing should be increase the nutrient density of your diet, pay more attention to the quality of food on your plate versus just trying to push a higher quantity. Yeah, I, I would agree. What yeah. other myths can you think of? So another one is that um, everybody is going to need an iron supplement. Oh, uh-huh. And yes, iron needs do increase during pregnancy. And yes, there's a lot of people who come into pregnancy with low iron stores. But 
Iron supplements are often really poorly tolerated. Yes. In fact, like the vast yes. majority of people who discontinue iron supplements in pregnancy do so because the side effects are unbearable. It could be nausea, constipation, just it, it, they're not pleasant. Now, there are some forms of iron that are better tolerated, but I think it's sort of like the guidelines pushing refined grains that are fortified. It's like we need to be looking at the food sources of iron, which contain A, the most absorbable iron, heme iron from, from animal foods, like the beef we keep bringing up. Um, uh-huh, uh-huh. And it also comes with a lot of nutritional cofactors that improve your body's ability to absorb and utilize the iron and prevent anemia, like vitamin B12 and vitamin A. So I think we really need to be shifting the focus to food sources of iron and less of this push of everybody needs an iron supplement. Because in truth, not everybody does. I mean, I've gone through two pregnancies without experiencing anemia, without taking an iron supplement, without taking, you know, my prenatal vitamin did not have iron in it either. There was no supplemental iron coming in. It was just food. And that can be sufficient. I mean, what did we do, you know, 100 plus years ago before we (laughs) had iron supplements available, right? It was food. Well, Lily, as you're talking, there are two things that are just jumping out in my mind. One is having worked a lot of labor and delivery and interviewed women as they were admitted to labor and delivery. I would ask about their uh, prenatal vites or their uh, specifically their iron. And I was astonished at how many women told me, ah, yeah, I know I'm supposed to be taking those, but, and you know where I'm going with this, Mm -hmm. uh, they, they talked about the side effects, the constipation and the nausea and so forth. And so they just plain didn't take them. And I was really astonished at how many people said that to me. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, you know, a lot of people really want to be compliant, especially during pregnancy. So Mm -hmm. it really told me that, um, Maybe maybe that just wasn't right. You know, like my little brain says, maybe that's just not right. And Lily, the other thing that I want to get clear about, I just get this from my dietitian friends, but please confirm it for me and for those who are listening. As a general rule, would you say that these micronutrients always behave better? I'm sorry, I don't have a better phrase, but mm-hmm. the, 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 the micronutrients behave better when they are in food than when they are in a capsule form. Is that a true statement? So I'll tackle the first one first, which is that many people don't take a prenatal because it gives them adverse side effects, like you say. And I think well. a lot of that is actually coming from the iron. So I, oh, I'm yeah. an advocate for an a iron-free prenatal. And then if you need it, if you're experiencing anemia and if food isn't enough, then you add in the iron and you add in a form that's much better tolerated, like iron bisglycinate, for example, is much better tolerated, very low um, incidence of side effects with that form. Um, The second part of your question was about whether the nutrients coming from food are better tolerated than the nutrients coming from supplements or if they're better utilized. And it it depends. In some instances, yes. And in some instances, it's not necessarily a difference. And to, to expand upon that, there are some nutrients where we have many different types of them. So they might exist in food in a different form than when you get in supplements. So a really good example of this is folic acid oh, versus uh-huh. the folates in food or 
there are supplemental forms of folate that are that are utilized well by the body, which would be like L-methylfolate, for example. Those ones are utilized just fine, but if you're using folic acid, there's 40 to 60% of the population that has a gene- genetic variation that decreases their ability to metabolize it. So you don't actually have the folic acid doing what it should be doing. You end up with unmetabolized high levels of folic acid in both mother and baby, and we don't even fully understand the potential side effects of that. I was so just going to say, you and I both know that we could make a whole show talking about the folic acid mm-hmm. and the folate for sure. Hey, everybody, uh, we need to take a break, but don't go away. I'm Marie Biancuzo. If you're host for Born to be Breastfed, I'm here today with my guest, Lily Nichols. We will be right back after this short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff? Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions. Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours. You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process. Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7 so staff can study at their own pace. You can use the course for all of your staff or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report so you can tell who has started or finished. Best of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish. Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course. Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894. And ask for your bulk discount. What's the weirdest place I've ever done it? Probably at my niece's high school musical during intermission. I've done it on an airplane. In our minivan while his mother was driving. Hi, Mom. What's the weirdest place I've ever pumped? Probably the car dealership. In the bathroom at my sister's wedding. Finding a good place to pump can be hard. Donating breast milk is easy. No matter where you've pumped, you'd make a good donor to the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin. Learn how your milk can save lives at milkbank.org slash good donor. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Marie Biancuso, and I'm here today with my special guest, Lily Nichols. She is a registered dietitian and nutritionist. She is the author of Real Food for Pregnancy, as well as Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. So, Lily, before we went to break, I was asking you about whether or not it made a difference if you get the micronutrient from the, the food itself or from a supplement. And you gave me one example, which was the folic acid, folate, and so forth. And I know we could talk uh, certainly for another hour, probably another day or week about that. But uh, do you have other examples for us that we need to be aware of? Yeah. So another example I wanted to bring up was the nutrient choline. That's and news to me. I found you had that a lot in the book. Talk to us about choline. Yeah. So choline is a vitamin-like compound that shares um, many similar or related functions to folate, actually. It's required for fetal brain development. It's required for placental function. It helps prevent neural tube defects. It's involved in methylation, much like folate is. Mm -hmm. And choline is something that is rarely even included in a prenatal vitamin supplement. It's a very bulky nutrient. And so, you know, most people are trying to get away with as few capsules as possible. If you have an adequate amount of choline in a prenatal, it is definitely going to be more than one capsule a day, probably more than three capsules a day, okay? So it's not often included in prenatal vitamin formulations, but we know that choline works synergistically with your folate, with your B6, with your vitamin B12 at optimizing fetal brain development and the development of the baby as, as a whole, Um, And that's something where, you know, if it's not in the formula, then you're just not receiving it. Moreover, choline, even if you are to supplement with it outside of your prenatal vitamin, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, I just want to point out that when you get choline from food sources like egg yolks or salmon, for example, it comes packaged with the fatty acid DHA. DHA is an omega-3 fat also vital for brain development. Well, we now know that it turns out that choline actually helps deliver DHA to the fetal brain. So these nutrients work in tandem. So there's a lot that we just don't know or are continuing to learn about nutrients and how they function, where I just don't think that a prenatal vitamin is going to ever be a replacement for real food. It's it's more of an insurance policy. It's an, it's Mm. an add on. They're not a bad thing. But you do want to be looking at a, the quality, the nutrients they contain, um, and then you know just viewing them as as an add-on instead of a replacement. 
You mentioned the choline being in salmon, and I have to tell you that I have cooked the salmon cakes much as you have described them in your book uh, for years. And um, not only are they tasty, but they're kind of one of those go-to things where I say, ay, 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 I don't have any food in my house. Uh, where's my can of salmon? What can I whip up real exactly. quick here? <laughs> and and now you're telling me that um, the salmon has these wonderful nutrients. Uh, but but I want to depart from the salmon for a moment because I noticed how many times you mentioned beef, you gave recipes for beef, and you talked a lot about the grass-fed beef. Can you help us to understand why the grass-fed beef is so important? So the way that an animal is raised can actually affect the nutritional value of the meat. Of course, there's also animal welfare and environmental concerns as well, which I think are valid for the purposes of our discussion that we're talking nutrient-wise. And, you know, much like all animals have their native diet, cows are ruminants and they are meant to forage for grasses and and other green growing things. And as such, their bodies function better and they get better nutrition when they're eating those foods versus when they are fed grains. And you actually see differences in the nutritional profile of the meat as well, particularly in, in the fat content and the fat quality. So there's a higher, first of all, there's less fat in the beef overall when they're grass fed. That's also partially because they're able to move around, right? <laughs> they're sure, they're sure. exercising versus being stuck in a feedlot. Um, but you also see uh, higher ratios of omega-3 fats, which are more beneficial, and lower ratios of omega-6 fats, which can be problematic when over-consumed. That's, again, because usually the cows are being fed these grains and, and seeds and legumes that have high amounts of omega-6 fats. You also see... Um, better amounts of both vitamin A and vitamin E in the meat as well. So it just makes it more nutritious. Um, Also, the animals tend to be healthier because they're able to live like a cow should. And so there's lesser usage of antibiotics in their production, which means less antibiotic residues um, in the meat as well. And I might add that I think it tastes different. Do you agree? I do. I do. All righty. Uh, Along the same lines, I have made my own bone broth for so many years that I didn't even know that's what it was called. I, I I just thought that you didn't throw away carcasses. I thought you just made soup out of them. So why, uh, why should we be making our own bone broth? So I'll take this, I'll take this answer more towards the pregnancy side of things sure, and absolutely. the nutritional yep. side of things. Um, yep. Even though I could go on and on about food Forever. waste because <laughs> I am a, I'm a big proponent of minimizing food waste and I totally, I just cook like a grandma. So yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> nutrition wise, bone broth and also any, any sort of meat that you're cooking that is like a tough cut of meat that requires slow cooking or meat on the bone. There's a lot of connective tissue in those in those cuts and with if you're cooking say like a chicken carcass leftover from a roasted chicken you have all those little joints in there you have maybe some leftover skin that wasn't crispy enough so you didn't really want to eat it like all of that is providing really high amounts of collagen and collagen is vital for a healthy pregnancy especially 
a specific amino acid that's in it called glycine, which we know now is conditionally essential in pregnancy, which means that outside of pregnancy, you don't really have to worry about your intake of it. Your body can probably make enough of it from other amino acids. But in pregnancy specifically, you require such a high amount that you have to get some from your diet. And the best source of glycine by far is the bone skin connective tissue of animal foods. And bone broth is going to be a perfect way to extract that nutrient. So we need glycine for fetal DNA for the synthesis of collagen. So, of course, you can imagine you're growing a new human. I mean, they're growing a new skeleton, all their organs, all their vasculature, all their skin. That all requires glycine. Not only that, but your body also requires glycine because your uterus is going to grow exponentially large. Your skin is going to stretch quite a bit. Your joints are changing. That all requires more glycine and collagen as well. In fact, they've shown that the uterus at term contains 800% more collagen than it does compared to pre-pregnancy. So you need it for you and baby, right? Um, And just as an anecdotal thing, I've heard from quite a few midwives that in their clients who are not consuming enough collagen, they're more likely to have more severe tearing, perineal tears, and more difficulty healing. Because you need that collagen to allow your tissues to be more elastic, to yield more, right? So it's also potentially important for, for birth and also for postpartum recovery. That reminds me, as you were talking a few minutes ago about the salmon and some other things, you mentioned several times the omega-3s. And I just wanted to clarify with you a couple of things. First of all, in the old old days, I'm not sure what that is, but uh, older than I am, (laughs) we didn't see as much postpartum depression as we see now. And my guess is that we were eating beef from the farms that we actually were running our own farms and we were not worrying so much about profit and probably those cows were grass-fed. Nowadays, we do have a lot of postpartum depression and it is my humble understanding that the uh, omega-3s have, uh, omega-3 supplementation rather, has been related to helping with postpartum depression. Is that true? There is actually research on DHA helping with postpartum depression. And moreover, that DHA in particular tends to be depleted from the from the mom's body um, during pregnancy. And actually, it continues postpartum when you're nursing because you're going to preferentially transfer this vital nutrient to the baby's brain at your expense. And along the same lines, I feel like I'm always preaching that if you are in better nutritional health during your pregnancy, you're setting yourself up for better nutrition during breastfeeding. I realize that's a very sweeping statement, but am I more or less right? You are more or less definitely right. (laughs) And there is actually (laughs) a lot of research on this as well. So the nutrient needs postpartum are actually higher than they are during pregnancy for exclusively breastfeeding moms. Like you need to replenish those nutrient stores that have been, you know, taken from for the last nine months. And you're going to continue to need those nutrients both to heal from pregnancy and birth, but also to make sure that your breast milk has sufficient micronutrients because this is another big myth. 
there's this idea that your your breast milk is always nutritionally the same. And yeah, your breast milk is always going to be providing enough, you know, calories and enough basic macronutrients, but there are many vitamins that where the levels can be impacted by a mom's intake. Yeah. So yeah. it's a two birds with one stone thing. We want mom to recover well. We want her to feel strong. We want her mental health to be good. We want her energy levels to be okay, even after, you know, getting no sleep. Um, but that that really requires nutrition. Yeah, and the other thing I want to tell the audience is you made more than one statement in your book about the idea that you're not trying to say to the mother, you have to have perfect nutrition in order to breastfeed. And I wouldn't say that either. I would say you have to make your best efforts to have your best nutrition to to select those nutrient dense foods but you know none of us do everything perfectly all the time it's like of course you know it's like typing on skype i'm a really good typist but if i'm in a hurry well you know i'm kind of not so good of a typist so so how about this lily if you had to name just a half a dozen or so foods that would be the number one foods that you would recommend expectant women, pregnant women to eat, what would they be and why? Okay. Well, and I'll start by saying I completely uh, feel for all the listeners out there who are feeling overwhelmed because I myself have a four-month-old exclusively breastfeeding baby right now. Okay, so I'm, I'm in it, <laughs> right? It. I get it. I totally get it. Um, I can also recognize that, you know, when, when I'm able to eat better, um, I feel better. And that, that makes all the difference sometimes in getting through a tough day or a tough night, right? Absolutely. So with that, I will say that some of the foods that are most beneficial would be eggs, first of all. And this surprises a lot of people. Everybody thinks I'm going to lead with vegetables, but Vegetables are great, but really when it comes to the most nutrient-dense foods, eggs are one of the top of the list. So they're easy to prepare, they're relatively inexpensive, they're very nutrient-dense. They're one of the top sources of choline in the diet, if not the top, because we can consume a higher quantity of eggs than we can most other choline-rich foods. They also have vitamin B12, if they're chickens that have been raised on pasture or fed flax seeds or something, they're going to contain DHA as well. Um, they're also just very filling, right? You have a breakfast with eggs and you feel great for many hours. You have a breakfast of oatmeal and you're going to be starving in half an hour, maybe an hour, right? So they're very, um, very filling food. Another I one I would having say... eggs in the morning keeps me out of the carbs at 11 o'clock in the morning. It absolutely and, does. Yeah, and I would also say your book was so influential that uh, before we did this recording, I had a breakfast of eggs because I know you're so big on the eggs. But anyway, other than the eggs, what else would you suggest? Yeah, some other ones. I mean, we already talked about meat on the bone and bone broth. So that, for all the reasons yep. we discussed, is an excellent one to include. I would also say, and now this is something that people get really squeamish about, that organ meats and liver oh. are fantastic nutrient-dense foods, and yeah. we really yeah. don't eat much of them anymore. I just we saw a, uh, a campaign going out on uh, encouraging people to include organ meats in their diet, and they cited a statistic from 1974 that the average intake of organ meats in the U.S. was about 50 grams a week back then, 
and now and that's like maybe ounce and a half almost two ounces and nowadays it's five grams so when you take you know average it out over the whole year right so and we're barely it's my understanding that vitamins and minerals accumulate in livers is that true they do absolutely and liver is arguably the most nutrient-dense food on the planet it really is like a multivitamin in terms of a food so second to eggs for choline you have liver it has 200 times more vitamin B12 by wow. weight than you would get from a, a similar portion of like steak, for example. It has really high levels of iron and zinc. It has selenium. It has vitamin A. It has vitamin B6. It has folate in a form your body can use really well. It has copper. It has a lot of nutrients in there that are just vital to your body. And this is not to say you need to eat like a massive quantity of liver. Everybody hears this and they're like, oh my God, I can't, I can't <laughs> eat liver. I don't like liver. I didn't grow up eating liver. It tastes funny. And I have a bunch of recipes in Real Food for Pregnancy yes. that have what yes. I call hidden liver, where you're using a small amount of liver ground up, mixed into ground meat for something like meatloaf or meatballs, for example, where you don't even really have to taste it. And you taste can get it. over the whole idea you're eating liver. It's just hidden in there and giving you a little nutrient boost and you don't need a lot of it. it. All righty. Well, Hey, we got to take a break, but everybody don't go away. I'm Marie Biancuso. I will be right back with author of real food for pregnancy, Lily Nichols. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff? Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions. Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours. You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process. Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7 so staff can study at their own pace. You can use the course for all of your staff or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report. 
so you can tell who has started or finished. Best of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish. Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course. Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894. And ask for your bulk discount. What's the weirdest place I've ever done it? Probably at my niece's high school musical during intermission. I've done it on an airplane. In our minivan while his mother was driving. Hi, Mom. What's the weirdest place I've ever pumped? Probably the car dealership. In the bathroom at my sister's wedding. Finding a good place to pump can be hard. Donating breast milk is easy. No matter where you've pumped, you'd make a good donor to the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin. Learn how your milk can save lives at milkbank.org slash gooddonor. What's the weirdest place I've ever done it? Probably at my niece's high school musical during intermission. I've done it on an airplane. In our minivan while his mother was driving. Hi, Mom. What's the weirdest place I've ever pumped? Probably the car dealership. In the bathroom at my sister's wedding. Finding a good place to pump can be hard. Donating breast milk is easy. No matter where you've pumped, you'd make a good donor to the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin. Learn how your milk can save lives at milkbank.org slash gooddonor. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Marie Biancuso, your host for Born to be Breastfed. And I'm here today with uh, Lily Nichols. Lily, before we went to break, we were talking about some of the best foods that a pregnant woman should eat. We, I kind of cut you off so we go, could go to break. But uh, we did not talk about seafood. And I will tell you, two of my favorite places in the world to be are Hawaii and Southern California. Because I can eat seafood to my heart's content. I love it. Um I'm way too old to be pregnant, but if I was pregnant, what would you tell me about seafood? So, first of all, I would say that actually seafood is an excellent food source, which surprises people because there's all these concerns about mercury and fish, and we can go into that a little bit. But when you actually look at the, the specific micronutrients that you find in fish, they're providing a lot of things that you might not be able to find in other places, at least in a considerable quantity. Um, So you're finding DHA. It's going to be the primary dietary source of DHA. If you don't consume fish or seafood, by the way, I do recommend a supplement of that. It also provides a lot of iodine. It provides B12. It provides selenium. It provides vitamin B6. It provides iron and zinc. There's a lot of good stuff in seafood that we're just not necessarily getting enough of if we leave it out of our diet. I will say that 
you do want to have some awareness around mercury. So there are some types of fish that you want to avoid, and that's swordfish, king mackerel, tilefish, and shark. Um, They also recommend limiting tuna to no more than six ounces per week. But many other types of fish are perfectly safe to eat when you're pregnant. And they've actually found that mothers who consume the most fish, so more than 12 ounces of fish per week, they have children with higher childhood IQ and higher communication skills. And you actually find the worst cognitive outcomes among mothers who ate no seafood whatsoever. So even though you might come in contact with a little bit of mercury or some other contaminants in fish, the micronutrient density of the food far outweighs and is far more beneficial than, than the potential risks. That is very compelling, Lily. Yeah, I there's quite a bit of research coming out on fish now. And so much of it, I think, in the past has just focused on the DHA. And, uh-huh. you know, omega-3s, they are important. I don't want to throw DHA under the bus. But there's so much more going on, especially yes. the iodine, for example. I mean, a lot of pregnant women are low in iodine. It is a nutrient that increases significantly in pregnancy and is also vital to brain development, arguably more tied to optimal brain development even than DHA, I would say. Um, And fish, again, is going to be your major source of that. Well, yeah. So I think that what Lily is saying is, yes, you do need to be cognizant if you are in an area as we are and some of us even more so than others, uh, in an area where the the mercury contamination is a problem. But she's also saying, don't go overboard with that, but realize that the nutrient content might not be found elsewhere, and you do get some of those micronutrients that are hugely important. So, Lily, let me ask the question to you that I have been asked by so many people. I wish I had a nickel for every time I've heard this. Is it okay for me to have sushi when I'm pregnant? And I just want to remind people that technically sushi is those little rolled up things. And sometimes all they have in them is a piece of uh, asparagus or something. But I think their real question is about the sushimi, the raw fish. The raw fish. Yeah. So what do you say about the raw fish? Is it safe? And does it do you any good? So this is a this is a question I looked into quite a bit actually when I was writing Real Food for Pregnancy because on an anecdotal level and just a personal side, I've noticed that a lot of pregnant clients have craved sushi in pregnancy. Yes. And I was one of those people yes. too. I really craved sashimi and ceviche and it was like cooked fish for a certain pre- period of the pregnancy fairly early on was completely off-putting. Like, ugh, it just would make me wretch. But raw fish was so appealing, right? Now, conventionally, at least in the U.S., um, they recommend avoiding consuming raw fish because it has the potential to be contaminated with maybe bacteria or some viruses or parasites. But what I found interesting in my research was that in other parts of the world, raw fish is actually encouraged for optimal fetal development. So in Japan, for example, land of sushi and sashimi, (laughs) it is recommended. I also found it really surprising that on the British National Health Service website, NHS, they stated it's usually safe to eat sushi or other dishes made with raw fish when you're pregnant. And the rationale is that seafood that's marketed for human consumption undergoes screening for microbial contamination. And thus, it 
it you make sure that it's safer for um, for consumption than uh, it, like a random type of fish that you buy at the grocery store. So when you're looking at specifically sushi grade fish, almost all of it has been flash frozen and has been frozen long enough that it's inactivated the parasites. And it just becomes a matter of has it been handled properly after the fact. So that's something where I I really can't guarantee that sushi is going to be safe. Just like I can't guarantee that. Any other food Anything is going to be safe. Right. Um, in right. the U.S., 46% of foodborne illness outbreaks are tied to raw fruits and vegetables. So I can't wow. tell you your salad is safe. I can't tell you your cantaloupe is safe, right? Um, right. But right. what I can say is that the relative risk of getting sick from sushi, sashimi, raw fish is quite low. And you just want to pay attention to like the establishment you're purchasing it from. So make yes. sure it's like a cleanly yes. establishment. You're consuming it right away. It's not been sitting out for a long time. Like, you know, those sushi boat places where there's sushi afloat floating around right. for who knows how long on the little moat. No, like order it fresh. Sit at the sushi bar so you can watch them slice the fish straight from the refrigerator right in front of you. Um, and if it smells funny, don't eat it. You know, don't the pregnant it. nose is incredibly discerning on whether something has yes. spoiled or not. And, you know, you do you. You've got to decide if, if you want to take the risk or not. Uh, obviously, well, personally, I did take the risk and I never got sick from it. Um, but it, it's ultimately up to you and, and your discretion. Well, I usually tell people, think about this. When Before you were pregnant, where did you eat this raw fish? And do you have confidence in that food establishment? Because if you never got sick from it then, you're probably not going to get sick from it now. But I would avoid, and you just gave the example of those, I don't know, those funky little places that just look a, a little icky to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I would say, yeah, I, I would probably stay away from that. But if you trust the food establishment, and for those of you who didn't catch it, Lily is talking about the sashimi-grade fish. And I don't really understand how they grade that. I just know they do. And not all fish qualifies for that. So there is some, at least here in the United States, and I know we've got a lot of international uh, listeners as well, there is some safety mechanism there that should be in place. And by the way, I'd be hugely interested to hear from any of you from uh, Japan or Great Britain or anywhere else that she's mentioned, uh, because I know they kind of have a different take on us than than we Americans who probably get a little bit more uh, nuts about this stuff than than we should. (laughs) So Lily, help us with this. Now, we all make mistakes on nutrition. We all do, probably even you. But even though For you sure. know, well, you know, just because you know know better doesn't mean you always do better. Absolutely, <laughs> just the way it is. But uh, what mistakes do most women make as related to uh, pregnancy and nutrition? Uh, can you name some some of the biggies for us? Well, some of the mistakes I would say is that assuming that however you ate before pregnancy is going to work for you during pregnancy and is going to work for you at all stages of pregnancy. So the reason for this is that a lot of people get very, you know, I'm going to be super strict and do all the right things and eat all the right foods when I'm pregnant. And, and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to slip up at all. I'm not going to eat any sugar, right? They, they set these really high goals 
And then you come into the first trimester and then the nausea <laughs> hits and yep. then the food yep. aversions hit. And this idea that you were going to be having, you know, a kale salad with roasted salmon and, uh, you know, microgreens <laughs> on top, you know, it, it just is probably going to be something that's really unappealing to you for a period of time. So first of all, I would just say, give yourself a ton of grace because yeah. Every week, I feel like throws something new at you, you know, so maybe one week the nausea is bad and then the food aversions are weird and then you can't stand the sight of raw chicken in your house and then, you know, you have heartburn going on and then name it, right? There's always going to be something that comes up in pregnancy. So you really just have to give yourself a lot of grace and know that you're doing the best that you can with whatever circumstances are being thrown at you week by week. I'd say that's that's the biggest one because I think people hear all this stuff I'm talking about and they get really, I don't know, maybe worried that they're, or like anxious around food because they're so worried. Oh my gosh, what if I don't get the right micronutrients in? And, you know, it's kind of like the approach I take when I'm feeding my, my older toddler, it's like, okay, some meals aren't going to be perfectly balanced. But if I look at the the totality of the week, um, I, I know that we're getting mostly pretty good nutrition in on a weekly basis, but I try not to fret over a single meal or a snack not being perfectly balanced. So what I publish, so, you know, I have meal plans in the book to give people examples of how things work. I personally hate meal plans. I also hate recipes. I'm very much a fly by the seat of my pants person in the kitchen. But I wanted to give people examples of like, this is the ideal. This is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a balanced plate. This is what I'm talking about of moderating your intake of carbohydrates. This is what I'm talking about with balancing your plate with some protein, with some vegetables, with a moderate amount of carbohydrates, you know using nutrient-dense foods, incorporating liver into your diet. It's all of these things are, you know, ultimately, it's it's a compounding effect, right? It's additive over a period of time, but not every meal is going to be perfect. So give yourself grace in this yeah, process. Oh, I, I am totally with you on that. That or anything, food or anything else for that matter. You know, Absolutely. most of us just don't get everything right every day. We just don't. Uh, so yeah, I would say that would be a huge one, which is, um, yeah, give yourself some grace. (laughs) What are some other mistakes that women uh, make? So I think some other mistakes are that a lot of people are not getting enough protein. And this is one where, you know, protein is just, it's a part of every single cell in your body. It is vital for fetal development. And also your protein-rich foods are often some of your micronutrient-dense foods as well. And the conventional recommendations on protein for pregnancy are are an underestimate. The first ever study that was done to directly measure protein requirements in pregnant women was done only back in 2015. Okay, that's five years ago. That's not that long ago. So... All the previous levels were a complete guesstimate. Well, they showed that across all time points of pregnancy, they actually significantly underestimated protein requirements. In fact, in late pregnancy, they found that it was underestimated by 73%. Okay, so if there's anything that I can encourage people to do, it's to lead with meeting your protein requirement. 
And then a lot of other things tend to fall in place if you meet your protein needs. So my goal, and this is, can be tough in the nausea phase, but the goal, the optimal, is to have some sort of protein-rich food at every meal and snack. So yes, that might be your animal foods, your meat, poultry, fish, eggs, dairy products, but it also might be your plant foods as well, like beans or nuts or seeds. Um, these are things that are going to, A, fill you up more, meet your protein needs for you and baby, um, but they also tend to help regulate your blood sugar quite a bit as well. So you have yeah. less of those crazy cravings between meals, like we talked about with the eggs for breakfast, for example. You just notice a distinct difference. And I think because so many people have been scared away from consuming either meat or consuming fat, a lot of these foods, protein tends to come with fat in nature. It just happens yeah. that way. Yeah. A lot of people are unknowingly not eating enough protein. So I encourage people to play around with that and see if you feel differently when you are getting enough protein at your meals, especially breakfast. That's one of the ones that seems to make one of the biggest differences in how people's energy levels are and their craving levels are throughout the day. Again, I can just tell you I am not pregnant, but that absolutely makes a huge difference for me. I know, for instance, if I'm teaching my comprehensive lactation course, I try especially to get the protein in the morning because I know I'm barely going to get lunch and I know I'm going to get all goofy, you know. Yeah. And um, it, it's just it's such a simple thing to do. But you really got to be focused on it. I remember one of my friends said to me, Marie, when you're on the road, you must be pretty focused about your nutrition. I said, well, yeah, I am, actually. Uh, we need to uh, start wrapping up here today. But I just want to let everybody know, again, that I have been talking with my guest, Lily Nichols, RDN, CDE. She is the author of two best-selling books and uh, the I think these books are just, uh, at least that I've read, uh, The Real Food for Pregnancy, The Science and Wisdom of Optimal Prenatal Nutrition. And I would also point you to her other one on gestational diabetes. I would also like to say, if you are not familiar with her uh, website, you need to take a look at that. And it is, quickly help me, we're running out of time. It is Lily. LilyNicholsRDN.com. That's that's what I thought, but I wanted to make sure I was right. All righty. Uh, way too much uh, here that we've left behind. It would be great if we could talk again. But in the meantime, I just want to remind everybody, your baby was born to be breastfed. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuso next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do its best for you and your baby.